Good evening, everyone. Thank you all so much for coming tonight. I'm Alan Carey, Director of Sphere Education Initiatives. It's a pleasure to have you here for uh, tonight's Sphere webinar. We're very excited to be hosting a special book release event from our colleague, Chelsea Follett, uh, Managing Editor of HumanProgress.org and a Policy Analyst here at the Cato Institute. For tonight's conversation, we're really excited to be spotlighting a resource that is at the, the core of the way we think about what it is that Sphere is trying to do. As you all may know, and so many of you are our guests and friends and individuals who've been with us for years, part of what it is that we're trying to do with Sphere is bring to the forefront a conversation about the underlying ideas, principles, habits, institutions, norms that allow for productive, healthy prosperous societies. Uh, what better way to understand some of what goes into that and those kinds of conversations than understanding what we call centers of progress, those places throughout human history who have been key points of, we'll call them light, that is to say, key points where we've seen significant major advances in the way in which the world has progressed. Uh, I won't give away too much of what that looks like. I'll I'll save so much of that for my colleague, Chelsea Follett. But I wanted to share just a little bit with you all about what you can expect over the course of the evening. Here in a second, we're going to have Chelsea share for a, a while about her book, what, uh, what it covers, what those interesting features are about. Uh, after that, we'll take some questions, some Q&A from the, the group here. would love you throughout the course of the evening to add those uh, comments, questions here in the chat. We'll capture them and bring them up as we come along. And then we'll wrap up the conversation this evening, joined by uh, one of our very favorite people, Sean Kennard. He's a a uh, world history teacher at Yorktown High School here in Arlington, Virginia, and a longtime friend of Sphere and someone who has, I think, done perhaps more than anyone else uh, to bring these ideas to the forefront and bring them into the classroom. So very excited about what we've got coming up and the structure. Uh, two very quick notes from you all. One, uh, we will, of course, be offering professional development certificates for all of you joining us tonight. Uh, so just make sure that your name shows up in the uh, the participant box as what you registered so we can cross-check that information. And two, strongly encourage you, jump into the conversation as much as you can, throw it in the chat, leave those ideas there. We have plenty of opportunity to engage in those ideas. Without further ado, then, I'm going to step aside and turn it over to my colleague, Chelsea. Chelsea, take us away. Tell us a little bit about the book. Where did the idea come from? And I think most importantly, help us understand the incredible content of what you have to share in there. Thank you so much, Alan, for that excellent introduction. Let me just get my slideshow up and share my screen with you. Okay. So as managing editor of humanprogress.org, which I know many of you are already familiar with through Sphere, I am acutely aware of the mountain of statistical evidence showing just how far humanity has come. Obviously, there are still many problems. The world is certainly not perfect and never will be. But there has been so much measurable progress in so many areas from rising literacy to declining poverty. Poverty is now back to below uh, the pre-pandemic levels and is continuing its decline. It looks like the long-term decline that was briefly interrupted. And so as an increasing number of people get to live longer, healthier, easier, more prosperous, freer lives than our ancestors could have ever imagined. I'm also very aware of just how much the public tends to underestimate long-term progress. And so my colleagues and I at Human Progress spend a lot of time thinking about how to promote a proper historical perspective as well as intelligent debate about the drivers of human progress, the conditions for societal flourishing that were just mentioned in the introduction. And that's where the idea for this book came from, a simple question. Where does progress come from? certain places at certain times in history have contributed disproportionately toward making the world a better place. Examining the places where major advances happened is one way to learn about the conditions that foster progress in human achievement. 
the origin points of the ideas, discoveries, and innovations that built the modern world were far from evenly or randomly dispersed throughout the globe. Instead, they tended to emerge from cities, even in time periods when the vast majority of the human population lived in rural areas. In fact, even before anything that could be called a city by modern standards existed, progress originated from the closest equivalents that did exist at the time. So why is that? Why cities? And why certain cities and not others? Change is a constant, but progress is not. So studying the particular cities that have helped to create modern civilization during the moments when they did so and examining what they share in common may reveal the secret to cultivating innovation in the present and future. As Matt Ridley, author of best-selling books such as The Rational Optimist, The Evolution of Everything and How Innovation Works, says in the foreword that he kindly provided, this book is like a time travel cruise through the great flashpoints of human activity to catch innovations that have transformed human lives as they happened. But don't just take his word for it. Harvard University's Steven Pinker says, sometimes in places seem almost magical in the way they incubate ideas and movements. In explaining the magic, this fascinating book shines a light on the drivers of human progress. Tyler Cowen calls it an intellectual and historical tour of the world, while Johann Norberg notes, we shouldn't just study the past to, avoiding, to avoid repeating mistakes. We should also go there to be inspired by remarkable episodes of creativity and progress. So with highly accessible yet fact-filled snapshots of different cities that changed history, this book should appeal to lovers of travel and history alike and anyone fascinated by human progress and the factors that drive it, but especially those seeking to foster conversations on those crucial topics, such as educators. So where are the centers of progress in the book? At the beginning of the book, you'll find a map much like this one, showing that the book features cities from across the world. But let's zoom in and go over them quickly. This book moves like most history books chronologically from the end of the last ice age and start of permanent settlement, the Neolithic revolution, all the way to the modern day, featuring each city during a particular historical moment when it notably contributed to human progress. Many of the early chapters focus on places around the Fertile Crescent region in the Middle East where civilization began. That's the region that gave us agriculture, writing, and legal codes, written laws. Readers can learn about medicine in the ancient Egyptian capital of Memphis and philosophy in classical Athens. They can virtually visit the Library of Alexandria meet engineers in ancient Rome and astronomers in Baghdad during the Islamic Golden Age. Other chapters explore the first university in medieval Bologna, art in Renaissance Florence, public health in Dubrovnik as the city grappled with the Black Death pandemic, security in medieval Benin City, whose walls once may have been the largest man-made structure on the planet, the dissemination of printing technology from mines, the first circumnavigation of the world by a ship that departed the port of Seville, the openness of Amsterdam, the birth of modern physics in Cambridge, the enlightenment in Paris, and the emergence of modern social science in Edinburgh, not to mention the music of Vienna, industrialization in Manchester, the slavery abolition movement centered in London, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and so much more. While many of the centers of progress may be familiar to you from history of Western civilization courses, this book features cities from many parts of the world. And no matter how much of a history buff you are, I can promise that this book will introduce you to some places that you are not familiar with. Perhaps including Bujbin, 
where the indigenous people of Australia may have been the first to invent fish farming, Mohenjo-Daro, where the Indus Valley civilization in what is today Pakistan made impressive innovations in sanitation, creating a system in some ways more advanced even than the later Roman one. Nan Madol, a stone city built atop a coral reef in what is today Micronesia that showcases the far reach of the earliest seafarers. The book also profiles Chang'an, the easternmost stop along the famed Silk Road trade route, Kyoto, where the novel was invented, Hangzhou during the Song Dynasty, when the city almost began the Industrial Revolution, Agra in India, where many people believe the world's most beautiful work of architecture stands, Wellington, New Zealand, the first city to grant a country's women the right to vote, Hong Kong during its period of rapid economic development in the 60s and 70s, and Tokyo, a world capital of technology in the 80s. Centers of progress a bit closer to home might be of particular interest to those of us here in the United States. I saw in the chat that several teachers joining us today are actually from Centers of Progress featured in the book. Six of the centers of progress are in the US and one is in what is now Mexico. These chapters discuss the history of sports in pre-colonial Mesoamerica, Philadelphia's role in the American Revolution and the emergence of liberal democracy, Chicago's railways during the age of steam, LA's creation of modern cinema during the golden age of film, post-war New York's rise to become the global center of finance, Houston's contributions to space exploration, and the role of San Francisco and the broader San Francisco Bay Area in the digital revolution. So this is clearly a very geographically diverse book, a truly global history of human progress. But as different as all of these places are, some common themes do stand out, which brings us back to that question, why cities? The answer is people. Whenever more people gather together, that increases their potential to engage in productive exchange, discussion, debate, collaboration, and competition with each other. To quote Matt Ridley's foreword once again, Progress is a team sport, not an individual pursuit. It is a collaborative, collective thing done between brains more than inside them. This illustration from the chapter in the book on seafaring showing multiple people propelling a boat that none of them could move individually illustrates the point. Higher population is sufficient to explain why progress often emerges from cities rather than the countryside, but of course, not all cities. Progress may be a team sport, but why do certain cities seem to provide ideal playing conditions and not others? That brings us to the next thing that most centers of progress share. Peace at least relative peace. And that makes sense because if a city is plagued by violence and discord, then it is hard for the people there to focus on anything other than survival and battle. Pictured as Mohenjo-Daro, which is said to have had the best plumbing in the ancient world, surpassing, again, even the sanitation system that the later Roman civilization created. While much remains unknown about the Indus Valley civilization, they have left behind no evidence of a large army and no palaces suggesting that they may have had no king or were at least far less hierarchical than the contemporary Sumerians. They left a lot of palaces. But suggesting that the Indus people uh, valued rather different things. The largest building they left behind was a giant bathhouse rather than a royal residence. 
If the city's funds were not greatly diverted toward endeavors of conquest or the upkeep of a powerful ruler, perhaps that helps explain why the city's people were able to instead fund advances in sanitation and hygiene that were just unprecedented for the time and greatly benefited the city's people. There are, of course, exceptions to every rule. Mines is a city featured in the book where violent turmoil actually became a catalyst for positive change despite the odds. That was the city where Johannes Gutenberg, creator of the Gutenberg printing press lived. A chaotic series of violent episodes culminating in a war resulted in a diaspora of printmaking apprentices fleeing the troubled city and spreading out across Europe in different directions, disseminating knowledge of printmaking wherever they went, as you can see on this map. The rapid dissemination of printing technology then forever changed the world and eventually weakens the power of the nobility and the guilds, the very warring factions that had torn minds apart. The lesson that I took away from the story of minds is that even when conditions are far from ideal for progress, human ingenuity can sometimes still find a way. But when all of the right conditions for progress are present, incredible innovation is still far more likely. And that brings us to the last, but by no means least, secret ingredients, I'd argue, of progress. Freedom. Centers of progress during their creative peak tend to be relatively free and open for their era. That makes sense because simply having a large population is not going to lead to progress if that population lacks the freedom to experiment to debate new propositions and to work together for their mutual benefit. Economic freedom, for example, the freedom to exchange goods and services has arguably been one central driver of progress. Several chapters of the book explore economic development as cities such as Amsterdam during the Dutch golden age and Hong Kong in the sixties rose from obscurity and relative poverty to global prominence and shining prosperity through policies of economic liberty. It is obvious how entrepreneurship and free enterprise have brought about innovative new companies and useful technologies in places like Tokyo and San Francisco, but I don't think many people appreciate just how many kinds of progress can flow from this form of freedom. For example, did you know that donated funds that ultimately came from a thriving soap business allowed Isaac Newton to publish the Principia, or that writing itself was originally invented for the purpose of bookkeeping by accountants in ancient Sumeria? And although there is a popular belief that a true artist should create art only for its own sake, and that the profit motive pollutes art in some way. Many of history's greatest, most beloved artistic achievements, from the classical music of Vienna to the Renaissance paintings of Florence, were the results of lavish funding and financial patronage. And by making the creation of art so lucrative, each of these cities attracted talent and gave the world some of the most beloved art of all time and new artistic innovations that enriched humanity. Meanwhile, the liberty to discuss a diversity of ideas, whether in the marketplaces of ancient Athens or the reading societies of Edinburgh during the Scottish Enlightenment, has helped humanity to further our understanding in countless areas from political philosophy to economics and beyond. Freedom to debate new ideas, including controversial ones, has proven particularly important to bringing about moral or social progress, such as the abolition of slavery and the right to vote for women. This is part of why the work you do as teachers is so important. You are teaching the next generation to engage in civil discussion and even on hot button issues and to value critical thinking, open-mindedness and engaging with others across deep differences to get closer to the truth. 
Centers of progress sadly tend to be at their creative peak only briefly. The so-called golden ages of the different cities in the book are incredibly transitory, flickering in and out of existence, often in only a few decades. The conditions for progress, such as freedom, openness, tolerance, and peace can be fragile. Chang'an, once among the wealthiest, most dazzling and cosmopolitan cities in the world, enriched immeasurably by international trade through its position as the so-called starting point of the Silk Road, became increasingly intolerant, resulting in massacres of thousands of Silk Road merchants from different cultures. The city also suffered violence due to political instability and rebellions. Further political instability in other parts of the world along the Silk Road trade route made the Silk Road increasingly unsafe and trade declines precipitously, ending Chang'an's golden age. Baghdad's openness to knowledge from foreign lands and scholars of diverse backgrounds allowed Baghdad during its golden age to build on others' work and produce groundbreaking original scholarship in mathematics, astronomy, and other areas. We ought not to be ashamed of appreciating the truth and of acquiring it wherever it comes from, the renowned philosopher and Baghdadi Al-Kindi wrote. Even if it comes from races distant and nations different from us. Those were very tolerant words for his era, but unfortunately, his ideas lost out. Eventually, the triumph of an anti-rationalist and xenophobic faction seized power in Baghdad and the subsequent persecution of liberty-minded local scholars as well as scholars from different backgrounds helped to bring the Islamic Golden Age to an end. Baghdad's ultimate downfall, of course, came in the form of conquest, and it is said that the Tigris River ran black with ink after the Mongol invasion because so many scholarly writings were destroyed. Both Chang'an and Baghdad show how war and the loss of the values of openness and tolerance can so quickly unravel a society's status, a city's status as a center of progress. Hong Kong provides another example of the transitory nature of centers of progress. As the book notes, from a starving city plagued by war and poverty to a shining beacon of prosperity and freedom, Hong Kong's rise exemplified the potential of limited government, rule of law, economic freedom and fiscal probity among other values that sadly the pillars upon which Hong Kong's success was built are now crumbling in the tightening fists of the Chinese Communist Party's authoritarian policies. Whatever the future may hold for the island city, its transformation reflects how much people can achieve when given the freedom to do so and reminds us that liberty can be lost and must be treasured. I've been telling you about the lessons that I personally took away from researching and writing about the cities in this book, and you can find a summary of some of those musings in the book's introduction. But the book itself just presents history in a straightforward and non-ideological manner so that readers can draw their own conclusions. As a non-politicized and highly accessible, easy-to-read history book, it is perfect for young people and classrooms. And there are, as you know, actually pre-made lesson plans for learning about the cities in Centers of Progress available for free online. And you'll learn more about them later on tonight. But you can visit either Cato's Sphere website and select classroom content followed by human progress, or you can find the lesson plans on humanprogress.org by selecting projects in our top menu and then scrolling down to classroom resources. These detailed free lesson plans that you will learn more on in a moment were of course designed by AP World History teacher Sean Kinnard and easily fit into a wide variety of history, human geography, and social studies courses. And while the books 
chapters are also being assigned at the university level, they are highly accessible and easily appropriate for high schoolers. Here you can see some tweets by educators and others about the book. Nancy calls it a perfect resource for teaching cultural geography. Trisha says that she plans to use Centers of Progress, among other resources, in her work as a staff developer. There are so many ways that this resource can inspire conversations. While the lesson plans focus on specific chapters, at the end of the book, there is a list of general questions for book clubs and classrooms to help readers think about the big picture. One of them asks readers which center of progress they think contributed the most to human progress. On our social media, we've actually been running a tournament where people vote on just that question. So that's just one more somewhat unconventional way to get conversations going around this book. You could recreate some of these matchups in your own classroom and ask students to debate whether they think classical Athens or Rome contributed the most to the creation of the modern world, for example. This exercise could help students to think about which innovations they believe contributed the most to human well-being and to articulate their viewpoints clearly and engage in civil debate on a topic far enough removed from the present day that it is fairly easy to approach dispassionately. That's good practice for engaging in discussions on more hot button contemporary issues. This book contains a lot of information and is even being assigned at, again, the university level. For example, in the course Geography 365, Trade and Globalization at the University of Toronto, the required readings include chapters from Centers of Progress. For example, here you can see that before the lecture on transportation, the class read the city profile that I wrote on how the city of Rome took the concept of a road to new heights. But it's not the kind of book that people only read if assigned. Here you can see it among several other nonfiction books at Barnes and Noble, including popular history books like A History of the World in Six Glasses and Salt, which tells the history of that particular uh, spice. So this is an easy to read, enjoyable, highly accessible book that is very much appropriate for high schoolers, even advanced middle schoolers and young people and can help them, uh, can help engage them and get them interested in history and so many of the other topics that the book touches upon. So Centers of Progress makes a great gift and not only for teachers and professors alike, uh, but also for other fans of nonfiction in general. And while it may be of particular use to teachers, especially those in the social sciences, no matter what someone teaches, chances are some of the chapters could be of use to their classrooms, whether that's the chapters um, on the history of art and music in a humanities classroom, or some of the chapters on the history of science being used in a science classroom. And because this book, again, is not ideological and because it is a light read with easily digestible short vignettes on different cities and covers so many different topics, that it really is something that can be enjoyed by a wide variety of people, this book also makes a great gift I must mention for birthdays, holidays that are coming up, and so on. Someone who broadly agrees with me on the causes of progress recently told me, I did something subversive with your book. I gave a copy to a friend who very passionately disagrees with me and with whom I have agreed to completely stop talking about politics and policy for the sake of our friendship. And while the friend hasn't finished the book yet, reportedly so far, he's enjoying it. So with the holidays not that far off and many of you having, statistically speaking, already begun your holiday shopping, know that this book can not only enliven your classrooms, but can make a great gift for so many people in your life, regardless of where they stand politically or ideologically. This is a book that everyone can read and enjoy and learn from, and that hopefully sparks many intelligent discussions and debates about the causes of progress, both inside and outside the classroom. Centers of Progress is also available as an ebook 
and as an audio book. Uh, and soon will be available translated in Spanish as well, which I know is important uh, to some of you who have students who may not be native speakers. However you read it, I hope that you will consider taking a journey through the book's pages to some of history's greatest centers of progress. And now over to Sean for more detail on the wonderful lesson plans that he's created. We're actually gonna we'll jump into Q and A first. So let's uh, 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 Chelsea, we've got a, a handful of great questions in the chat. I did wanted to to know for the the folks who haven't had a chance to take a look yet. Uh, we did also throw the the link to pick up a copy of the book. You can find it either on the registration page for this event or uh, follow the link there. It's fantastic. Uh, Chelsea, can I have you go ahead and stop sharing your screen? Absolutely. We'll, we'll pop up. Yes. Perfect. Well, the first question we had came in, which is a great one. Normally, I like to take sort of moderator's prerogative and, and ping you with a few, but I want to just jump right into this one. Uh, so Morgan Leal asked, in such a polarizing political climate as we are in today, what past example of human progress could we look to for inspiration on how to navigate the current situation this country is in? So uh, thinking of the the books, uh, the, the centers covered in the book and perhaps one or two of them, which are ones where you might say these are most fruitful for thinking about parallels to the contemporary conversation? That is a great question indeed. I think one city that stands out as an exemplar of uh, tolerance and allowing a diversity of views to flourish, allowing for free and open debate, even across very intense differences would be Amsterdam during the Dutch golden age. That city actually in the book is just featured for openness was the subheading I chose for it, but there were so many different innovations in finance, uh, the first uh, major stock exchange, for example, and art with the Northern Renaissance and in other areas that they created. And their city was known for an incredible amount of tolerance for their era. At a time when uh, religious tensions were incredibly high between Protestants and Catholics and even different Protestants, uh, uh, denominations often bitterly opposed one another, Amsterdam practiced an unusual degree of religious tolerance for its era. It was also very opening to Jews um, and religious minorities. This was one of the things that helped them to thrive, allowing people from different cultures to come in and work to enrich the community in different ways. They also allowed for the publication of many works that other cities in Europe would not touch. Thinkers as diverse as uh, John Locke, the father of liberalism, and Thomas Hobbes, a defender of absolute monarchy, uh, diametrically opposed thinkers in a way, both at times uh, took refuge in Amsterdam or published books through the printing presses of Amsterdam when no other printing press would allow them to see the light of day. So allowing people who have very different views, very different beliefs, different backgrounds to all engage in the conversation, having a very open and tolerant society allowed Amsterdam to have a, an advantage in an extremely polarized world where all other cities tried to clamp down on different ideas or tried to exclude people who didn't fit a particular mold, this city took a different approach. And I think that we can learn a lot from Amsterdam in that era. And many thinkers actually say that Amsterdam during the Dutch Golden Age, this is arguably the beginning of the great enrichment that move out of poverty. If you look at a graph of GDP throughout world history, it is almost flat from the beginning all the way up until a sudden takeoff, uh, that upward shaft of the hockey stick, it's often called the hockey stick graph. And it began first in Europe and then in the rest of the world. But within Europe, it was arguably uh, Amsterdam where this, in fact, began this great enrichment. So that just shows how dramatic the results can be when you allow for this kind of openness and tolerance and free expression of different viewpoints, even among people who greatly disagree with one another. 
Well, uh, what I love about thinking about a place like Amsterdam and openness first, it's a fantastic segue into the second question that we've got. You you spoke a little bit during your presentation about the fragility that comes with so many of these kinds of centers, right? They don't often stay for long periods of time as productive, as innovative as they are at their peak. Uh, Mark Robinson asked during the uh, in the chat, he says, Senator Scoop Jackson of Washington observed that Norway in the 1930s had an open society in a beautiful environment, but none of that mattered when the Nazis invaded. How can a society balance the need for peace, openness, tolerance in a dangerous world? So thinking about, in this case, uh, a particular set of um, dangers of fragility, but you can think more broadly when it comes to thinking about what can help overcome that fragility that we see as we we want more of those kinds of centers how can they be perpetuating that is a great question again peace does seem to be an important driver of progress and some people disagree with that some people believe that war brings about progress um if you read the opening of the book you can see some counter examples of that for example if you look at the creation of the computer, some people argue World War II actually helped us to create computers faster. But if you look at where the different thinkers were located who were working on this at the time, uh, they were very much scattered in different countries. And even the different ones who were in the same country, there were various people in the US who were working on this at the time, often were not really allowed to work together because of the secrecy that came with doing all of this research in a time of war. And so while we can't rerun history and see what would have happened if uh, there had not been a World War II or if there hadn't been a war, uh, it is arguable that computers would have been created faster in a time of peace. So I do think peace is important for progress. And of course, if your uh, city is conquered or if it is leveled, then that's not only not conducive to progress, but completely destroys the city. And you see again and again in history, unfortunately, that war very often is what ends these golden ages, these brief creative peaks of cities Part of that is because historically conquest was very much normalized. And so if a city was successful, if it was prosperous, that made it a target for conquest or invasion. And now more recently, we have a strong international norm against conquest, although that was recently, of course, um, broken with the invasion of Ukraine. Um, you can find other examples. Uh, overall, conquest is no longer an accepted norm uh, globally, whereas before it was something people were very open about. Now, even if a country engages in what is clearly conquest, it will claim that it is engaging in liberatory action or it will give a different excuse because conquest is so despised today. So it is possible to change international norms. I think that's one answer, um, but you have to talk to a foreign policy specialist as to the best way to really secure a lasting peace. Absolutely. And one of the, the things that you mentioned as part of your introductory remarks was learning about so many cities that uh, are new to you. And so thinking about your own experience as you were writing the book, as you were going through some of these chapters, what was uh, an example of a city that you found particularly surprising? Uh, maybe one you hadn't known nearly as much about, but as you started digging into it, you were, uh, well, surprised about what it is that you learned and the, the unique role that that regime played in the advancement of progress. There were a lot of cities that were surprising to me, but I'd say one of the most fascinating that I knew nothing about prior to doing research on it for the book uh, was Dubrovnik, a city in modern Croatia, currently a very tourist-oriented city on the Adriatic. But once a, a city-state called the Republic of Ragusa, a sort of medieval Hong Kong, a, a sea-trading supernova, uh, due to its position. And by engaging in uh, free trade, but also by having an incredibly open and devoted to freedom society for the time, they were able to prosper. They were actually, if you count a city-state as a country, it was one of the first countries to ban uh, the slave trade. 
and libertas, the Latin word for liberty, uh, was uh, their flag. Their motto was the Latin for liberty is not sold for all the gold in the world. So this was a very freedom-loving people for the time. And when the Black Death pandemic struck Europe and city after city, often killing a third or even half of the population in different cities, it of course did not spare Dubrovnik or Ragusa at the time either, it killed about a third of the city's population. But what made Ragusa's response or Dubrovnik's response unique was that they, unlike other cities created, they were the first to create a systematic system of limited quarantine waiting periods that allowed them to keep their ports open during the plague and prevent further plague outbreaks in their city while actually achieving significant mercantile expansion during the Black Death, while other cities, uh, trade-based cities such as Venice, for example, another city-state at the time, had to completely close their walls and not let anyone into the city for a time yeah, in response to devastating plague outbreaks. And so I thought it was just a fascinating story that people should know more about. I love that one, and not an area that I was familiar with previously. Uh, Lisa asks in the chat, if you could visit one of these cities during the period of progress, uh, which one would it be? Well, that's a great question, Lisa. It's actually one of the questions asked at the end of the book in the list of discussion questions for classrooms and book clubs. So great minds think alike. Uh, that is such a good question. I think it would be obviously very glamorous to visit LA during the golden age of film. I think it would be remarkable to feel the energy of New York during its post-war rise to become a center of finance and so many other things. Um, but I, I think Florence during the Renaissance is probably the one I would pick just to be able to to walk those streets which were so filled with different great thinkers and artists at the time. Not a bad choice, even today. Uh, so strong option there. Uh, great question just came in on the chat, and I think a challenging one. Uh, so Simona asks, many establish a connection between progressive Western cities during the pre-industrial and industrial areas and mm -hmm. colonization. Is there any evidence to support the idea that colonization fueled economic wealth, subsequently promoting progress in both Western Europe and Africa? Hmm, that's an interesting question. So the best argument for that idea from the book would probably be Hong Kong, not because of the colonization itself, but because some of the ideas that were imported through that, uh, such as free enterprise, limited government, rule of law, uh, served the city so well. It wasn't colonial officials, though, coming in and saying, do things this way, and that is how your city will grow. It was really uh, actually a stepping back and implementing a policy of non-interventionism and just letting the city's people be free to actually rebuild their city after a devastating war that allowed Hong Kong to prosper. So uh, this is an interesting question. I don't, I think that insofar as there's anything to it, it is not the colonization itself, but the possibility that certain ideas or policies happen to be imported through colonization uh, that may have helped some uh, cities. But uh, one thing that you see in the book is that you know, different, different regions are represented differently uh, in the book. There are obviously a lot of Western cities. There are many cities outside of the West as well. One of the areas where there are not as many uh, centers of progress in the book uh, as it stands is would be Sub-Saharan Africa. There's only one city, uh, Benin City featured there. But if I had to predict where you might expect to see future centers of progress and innovation, just because of uh, its growing demographic advantage with such a young and growing population, I would suspect that if it can implement policies of freedom and allow that growing population to experiment and debate and exchange and so forth, as so many other places have in the past, 
that you would expect to see many thriving centers of progress in Sub-Saharan Africa popping up in the future. A related question. Uh, if you had to have picked a 41st center of progress, what didn't make the cut? Uh, so what, what was the, the next on the cusp of where you wanted to include? Oh, that is a great question. There were many, many cities that did not quite make the cut. Uh, for example, for the chapter on the birth of liberal democracy in the, Amer in the American Revolution, I was kind of torn between Philadelphia or Boston. I ended up picking Philadelphia, and I stand by that decision as more relevant. Um, but there were so many other cities that could have been included. Uh, there are many cities that are focused on advances in transportation, but one advance in transportation I did not feature would be cars. And so there's an argument that I should have included Detroit or another major uh, center of automobile production and discussed the rise of the automobile, which is obviously a huge uh, change and big innovation. There were a uh, few things that could not be definitively traced to a particular city because the way I wrote the book was I initially made sort of a list of different aspects of the modern world that we take for granted things like a stable food supply writing sanitation and then I tried to trace them to origin points and was surprised at how many could be traced to a particular origin point and a particular city but there were many innovations I would have loved to discuss that could not really be traced to one city um, Electricity uh, sort of dispersed geographically and how that came about. Um, uh, the harnessing of fire and animal husbandry both took place long ago enough that we don't know exactly where those began. Um, metallurgy also incredibly important to the creation of civilization and history, but uh, difficult to pick with just one city to exemplify uh, advances in that area. Uh, so there were a lot of things I, I would have loved to talk about that didn't quite make the cut. I also considered doing a chapter on modern music in addition to the chapter on classical music centered in Vienna, uh, but it's difficult to actually trace modern music to a single origin point. That could have uh, been uh, the Memphis in the United States, which would have been confusing because Mem Memphis in ancient Egypt was also featured in the book. It could have been uh, Nashville. It could have been New Orleans. It could have um, been New York, although the New York chapter does talk a little bit about uh, some of the musical innovations of that city. Uh, but I couldn't trace modern music to a particular city. Uh, and so it wasn't so much that particular cities didn't quite make the cut as much as particular innovations didn't quite make the cut because I often couldn't uh, trace them to one city definitively. Excellent. We have time uh, for maybe one or two more questions. So if you all have doozies, put them in the chat and we'll work it in. The last question that I have for you, Chelsea, is thinking about... Uh, Obviously, we'll hear from Sean in a second about some of the way in which he's helped translate some of these resources to be classroom materials to incorporate in those pieces. But if you were to share with the teachers here tonight or those who might happen to watch the recording about the key idea that you want the students to take away when thinking about the book and the ideas that are covered. So one or, one or two pieces that you would say, if they walk away thinking this about cities, about the conditions that enable their success, what are the most important points to convey to them? The most important thing I want them to walk away from the book with is uh, really a question of what makes a center of progress? What factors lead a place to succeed? Now, you've already heard what I think the answer to that question is. If they come away from the book with a different answer that they uh, they believe in, that's fine as well. I personally do, again, think that uh, you see the most progress when you have a lot of free people engaged in collaboration, exchange, debate, competition, and so forth in conditions of freedom and peace. Uh, but I really just want this to spark conversations on what sorts of policies and institutions lead to progress. And I think that it is possible to come away from the book with your own 
take, but I would just love this to inspire debates about that central question because it is so important to the future of society and human well-being that we take that question seriously. Excellent. Chelsea, thank you so much. It looks like you've escaped the wrath of our questioners. They have no more doozies for you. Uh, thank you again so much for joining us and for writing the book. If you haven't had a chance yet, please pick up a copy. It's a fantastic resource. If any of you are going to be joining us at the National Council for the Teachers of English uh, in Columbus this year, Chelsea is going to be joining us in giving a book talk. We'll also be doing a book signing and giveaway at that event. So do come. It'll be a fantastic experience. Uh, and with that, then, Let's go ahead and bring Sean on. I want to transition to talk a little bit about some of the ways that we can be bringing these ideas and resources back to your classroom. Uh, Sean, uh, like we introduced, he's a world history teacher here at Yorktown High School in Arlington, Virginia. He's been teaching with us for a long time and also a longtime alumnus of Sphere Programming. Early on, Sean was one of the first individuals that we talked to about saying, how can we bring these ideas and resources to the classroom? And uh, please, please desperately help us produce resources that teachers will actually use and are valuable for them. Uh, so Sean has been uh, writing for us on the uh, Human Progress suite of products for quite a while, including the Centers of Progress, uh, 14 of which are currently available on our website. So not all 40 cities quite yet. I have to continue to quiz, continue uh, twisting Sean's arm to see if we can get some more of those going. But they're fantastic. Sean, let me turn it over to you. I'd love for you to share a little bit about how do you bring these resources to life for your students? How have you done so? And why is it looking at these resources helpful for teaching what you teach already? And then with that, share us a little bit about some of the work that you've done. Sure. Hi, guys. How are you? Thank you for uh, coming out tonight. I know it's a school night for many of you, and I appreciate it. It's, it's, a, it's been a long day already for most of us. Um, thanks, Alan. And thanks, Chelsea. Thank you guys for having us again. Um, I love the book. Um, it's an awesome book. I've made, uh, as Alan said, I've made 14 lessons that go along with uh, the Centers of Progress. Uh, I teach AP World History. So um, all the lessons that I've made actually uh, align really well with the AP World History curriculum. So that's something. And um, what I try to do is I try to um, choose subjects that, you know, get kids interested. And in, like, I want the kids to think that you know, history is really something they can relate to. And I keep telling them this, that, you know, for most of our, I teach 15, 16 year olds. And for, for them, basically everything before, I don't know, 2010 is ancient history, right? And so uh, what I try to tell them is, you know, um, even though we have all this technology now and, you know, our lives are very different, but like, you know, human nature hasn't really changed. And so even if you go back, you know, a couple thousand years, it's people just like us. And I say things like, um, you know, people in ancient Sumeria, you know, they also had problems with their parents, you know, the parents still yelled at them to do homework and they had problems with their boyfriend and girlfriend, just like we do. And so they kind of laugh at that, but like that's kind of one of my objectives is to really make them think like we're really connected to the past and then look at the past and see like what we can really learn from that. And I really like what um, what Chelsea said, you know, um, it's a these articles, uh, these debates are just ways to get the kids to start thinking about history and these big questions. So um, I'd like to show uh, one of the lessons that I made, and I'm just gonna go ahead and share my screen here. Um, this is based on one of the articles that Chelsea mentioned. Can you guys see my screen? I think so, right? Um, on Mainz, and this is of course where um, Johannes Gutenberg made the first printing press in Europe. And so what I do is, is I, I look at um, Chelsea's articles and then I go through and I and I try to see, okay, what, what connections can I make between what she's written and what the kids in AP World History are learning? So for example, um, this article on Gutenberg is really well aligned with a topic we just covered. So we just finished um, unit one in AP World History, and I'm in unit two right now. And so unit one, topic six, is called Developments in Europe. And this, this article actually fits perfectly into it. And so actually I use this article and the activities to actually teach this, this part of, uh, of unit one. So this is what the, um, this is kind of the template that we use. It has a lesson overview at the very beginning, usually has a quote uh, from Chelsea's article and then has a link to the article itself. And then I always start off with a warm up 
And the idea is, is to just kind of, you know, get the kids thinking, get them talking. I get them into um, small groups or we just have a whole class discussion. Usually we, I have a video embedded here in the lesson. So just real basic stuff. Like for example, this video here is, is called Printing 101. It's like a three or four minute video because, you know, I mean, kids today, they have really no idea what it means to, you know, actually print a book in the old way. When I, this is how old I am. I actually took uh, one of these classes at high school. And so I actually learned how to do this. I think it was middle school, actually junior high school back then. But I mean, nowadays they, they would never see this. And so this video just shows them, you know, what it actually means. And there's all kinds of, um, you know, little trivia things here. Like something I learned that, you know, Chelsea was talking about something she learned. Something I learned is like where the, the words um, uppercase and lowercase came from, from reading this. I never knew that, you know, when you, um, the reason it's called uppercase and lowercase is because they had two cases, right, for the, the the letters when they were printing a book. And so the uppercase, the big letters were in the uppercase and the printer would have to grab from that from that case. And then the lowercase letters, the smaller letters were in the bottom. And that's why we call it that. So, um, you know, I aim for oohs and ahs from the kids. Sometimes I get maybe one like, ooh, that's cool. But, you know, I'm not my expectations aren't too high, but, you know, I try to throw in things like that. And then um, every uh, lesson plan has questions. And there's quite a few questions here. Um, I try to focus on the skills they use in AP World. So things like, um, you know, contextualizing, uh, making connections, um, comparing across periods and comparing, you know, across regions, for example, and talking about cause and effect. So um, this is just one of those examples here. Uh, for example, um, the first one on here, it asks the question about, you know, why did printing take off in Germany and Europe and not in China, even though printing had been invented in China. And so this is one of those questions, you know, we can talk about and talk. And I think the reason is most many people I've read have said that probably the reason is that because, you know, Chinese uses characters, whereas it's much easier to print books using movable type with Roman letters. Now, it doesn't have to be Roman letters, of course, but it could be any alphabet like we use. But that's probably the, one of the reasons that uh, it didn't take off in China. It didn't spread as much as it did in Europe. That's just one of these questions here. And then um, every lesson plan also has an extension activity or homework. Um, so I've got three here. Um, these are just things that you know you can use um, for homework for the kids, or if you want to, um, you know, if, if someone just wants to delve deeper, like some kids are really interested in these topics. And so this one is a counterfactual. I love to use counterfactuals with the kids. You know, like what if this hadn't happened? And this one is like, what if um, Gutenberg hadn't chosen to be a silversmith? You know work with a metal worker when he was, a, and that's the trade he learned when he was young. So what would have happened if he hadn't done that? How would history be different? And then another extension activity, um, of course, is a debate. And this is something I slipped into the, um, I slipped into the chat earlier. Um, some people say we're, we're going through another Gutenberg revolution right now with YouTube. And so, you know, YouTube and, you know, all these online platforms make it really easy for people to self-publish and get, you know, get their ideas shared with millions of people. And it's really lowered the barriers to entry to producing knowledge. And so this is kind of a connection we have with, you know, the 1500s, 1600s, because they were doing the same thing. They were grappling with this new technology that basically did the same thing at that time in a different, you know, medium, but still it's kind of the same concept. And so um, this debate is, you know, are we living through another Gutenberg revolution now? That's what this one is. And then finally, uh, one of my favorites, it, um, is the butterfly effect essay. And what the kids would have to do with this is, you know, think out a couple hundred years past the invention of printing by Gutenberg, and then um, try to make connections, you know, trying to trace back, back to that original invention, like all these different effects. So it's kind of a cause and effect essay, um, just trying to trace things out. And the kids really love this because, you know, it can, it's totally open-ended and they can bring their background knowledge and they can, they can be really creative writing this. So that's just one uh, lesson plan that I have. And I guess I'll stop sharing for now. John, thanks so much for, for sharing those examples. I had a couple of questions I wanted to ask for you. And if there were others that, that you all had in the chat and you want to throw them in for Sean about what this has looked like in his classroom, we, we have plenty of time to capture those as well. Uh, so Sean, what the, what has been the biggest challenge of using something like Centers of Progress or creating these kinds of lessons around these Centers of Progress for use with your students. So what are some of the things that you've run into and how have you been able to incorporate them effectively? Hmm, that's interesting. You know, I've actually, um, I haven't had that much pushback uh, about these. 
um, kids seem pretty receptive to them. And, you know, kids, you know, high school kids, you know, kind of the narrative is, you know, they're, they're cynical and jaded and stuff, but um, I don't know. They seem really like um, refreshingly <laughs> receptive to it, to be honest with you. You know, they I, kind of the, uh, the takeaway that everyone says is like, wow, that's really interesting. That's kind of the adjective I hear. I always hear, oh, this is really interesting. Oh, this is so interesting because so much of the, um, the news they get is so negative. And so when they see past examples of progress and, you know, how people solve problems and, you know, how far we've come since, you know, these past centuries, that's kind of what they say. They say, oh, this is really interesting. Oh, I like, you know, they get, they get it, it kind of, I don't want I don't know if it's inspiring to them, but it, it makes them kind of, I can see they kind of brighten up when they read these kind of like um, positive articles about history. Because so much of the time it's all about, you know, famine and war and disease and all these other things that we have to study. But um, these are kind of like uplifting articles and it kind of shows the positive side of, of, of history. I think that's a really important point. So often when we study history, it really is the progress of war to war to war to war throughout the chronological approach in being able to say, actually, there's a whole lot more to how we got to where we are in the world today. And so much of it is actually really great that has made our life better. And I think bringing something like this into it can be a really powerful way for hitting that message. Uh, same question for you, Sean, that I asked Chelsea earlier, if you had to pick uh, one of these cities in their golden age to be a part of, which one would you go to? Yeah, I thought about uh, my answer when you asked Chelsea that. Um, mine would be Kyoto. I went to, we, I took a, we took a trip this summer to Japan and we visited Kyoto for about a week. And the whole time I was there, I was like, oh, this would have been so cool to be back here, you know, during that period. And like, just because, you know, the city is, parts of the cities today are even so well-preserved and you can kind of take a trip back in time to to that era. And so that's where I would go. I'd choose Kyoto during that. I think it's the, um, the Heian period, right, Chelsea? Is that? That's correct. The Heian <laughs> era. Yeah. But it was the capital. All the courtiers would have been there. Uh, it would have been the center of Japanese culture at the time. Excellent. John, the, the last question I have for you is advice for fellow educators thinking about implementing uh, centers of progress or these lessons in their classroom. What are some of the most important things that you would say when you're bringing this in, this is what helps it come to life for your students. So what are some of the best things that they can do when they're bringing these back to the classroom after tonight's session? Um, I would just say, you know, you'd have to adapt every single lesson plan to your own, your own situation, and your own students. So there's like, you know, these lesson plans that, that we've made are just chock full of activities. And so what I would do is just kind of go slow and see what the kids are interested in and, you know, do one of the warm ups. Okay. See how that goes. And then do one of the articles and see how they receive it. I've done it with different groups. And sometimes, um, you know, some kids like doing all the questions and they really get into that, you know, or other kids, they just want to read the article together and, and just discuss. Some people want to do all the extension activities, some don't. So I think just being flexible and, and adapting it to what you need, I kind of see it as like each lesson plan is really way too much to do in one in one class, right? I mean, there's so much in there. So you could just pick and choose uh, what you want and, and, and um, yeah, feel it out as you go. I wouldn't, and don't be too rigid. I guess that's what I'd say. Absolutely. Well, Sean, thank you again, both for your work in bringing these Centers of Progress to life as classroom-ready resources that can be picked up and dropped into, well, anyone's classroom as of tomorrow. So take a look at those resources if you haven't already. And Sean, also thank you for all the work that you've done to share this with educators tonight. We really appreciate you as always being here as part of the conversation. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you, guys. So to wrap up our, our conversation for the evening, I have a couple of very quick points that I'd love to share with you all. Uh, as you all know, it's the fall. This is the heart of the conference season. So catch the Sphere team all around the country over the course of the next several months. You can find us in, uh, well, we'll be in Orlando this week. We'll be in Ohio and Iowa and then uh, Montana, Georgia, Texas, Nashville, New Jersey. We'll be all over the place over the course of the next few weeks. Come see us. We'd love to catch you there. Also, I wanted to give you all a heads up about a couple of upcoming events that I think are particularly exciting. We're holding our first ever 
uh, event in California and San Diego on November 4th. Come join us for that one. We'll be talking about criminal justice reform and universal basic income. Uh, fantastic event in a beautiful location out on the western portion of the United States. And finally, a heads up for you all who may already be thinking about your summer plans 2024. Sphere Summit will be coming back. Dates and applications opening up soon. You should see those within the next month or so. We'll let you all know when that goes live. With that, then, thank you all so much for joining us this evening. It's been a fantastic conversation. In particular, Chelsea, thank you for sharing your new book with us. We're thrilled about it, and we continue to be excited about supporting your work as things go forward. One forward-looking note, the companion book to uh, Centers of Progress coming out in the not-too-distant future, uh, Heroes of Progress. More details on that, and I'm sure we'll have a Sphere event on that one when that one comes live as well. With that, thank you all. We'll call that an evening for our conversation. Appreciate you all joining us and look forward to having you join us for future Sphere events. Take care.